I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we take the parables given in Scripture and then we dig into their meanings and their applications. As we've seen throughout this book, the book of Exodus is a revelation of God to mankind. It's not just something that he has said, but rather a revelation of his character and his attributes, a revelation of who he is. Now, this revelation begins at the base and elementary level with a revelation of Hashem's qualities as a God who sees our hardship, who knows our sorrows, who hears our cries, and who remembers the covenant that he has made with his people. Hashem is revealed to be a God who chooses men, some for honor and others for dishonor. He works to free men from those who would oppress and enslave, and he will go to whatever means necessary to do so. He will move heaven and earth to free his people, and as the God of creation, he can easily do so. And he is a God who will stand in judgment against those who keep his people enslaved and who deal in injustice and falsehood. And in his judgment, there will be those who will be judged to destruction, and there are those who will be redeemed, and they will be drawn into relationship and covenant with him. This book reveals that there will be challenges along the way to a true and lasting relationship between God and man that is built on trust, faith, and covenant. There will be tests and trials of faith and power. And in all of these tests, Exodus reveals that Hashem will provide for his people. He will provide food, water, and protection from enemies. And he will fight for his people and he will destroy those who oppose them. He is a God of order who works within structure. And when this path has been walked by his people and they finally come to him at his mountain, he will enter into a deeper relationship than we have ever experienced before. A relationship based on faith and love. A relationship that is likened to a marriage. One of caring instruction, provision, intimacy, and love. And in this relationship, he reveals that he cares deeply for those who are vulnerable. Widows, orphans, slaves, women, and victims. Those who by nature find themselves at the mercy of those around them. And these are the steps that have brought us up to this point. And if there's one truth that has been revealed all along the way in the course of Exodus, it's this. God and man, we work in different ways. 1 Samuel 16.7 makes this very clear, but Hashem said to Samuel, Do not look at the appearance or at the height of the stature, because I have refused him. For not as man sees, for man looks at the eyes, but Hashem looks at the heart. Man looks on and works from the outward inward. 
But Hashem begins in the heart and works from inward to outward. And that's what we saw last week as we began our several-month-long process of exploring the tabernacle in all of its significance. We recognized that when God approaches His people, He begins in the innermost heart of a person, the place that is likened to the Ark of the Covenant. And the process of change in a person and the approach of relationship from Him begins in this inwardmost chamber and works its way outward, from heart to nefesh, and then to our outward expression into the world. The path that the, the Shema lays out for us to follow. The path that is repeated throughout Scripture in many various ways. But men are not God. And when we come into relationship, our first instinct is to look on the outward. Especially when we begin intimate relationships with those whom we love. For humans, a relationship usually begins with a look, a shared interest, a laugh, even a voice or a way of acting. It's an attraction to an outward expression of a person. And this holds true when we approach God as well. We enter into relationship with God and we begin with the outward, with the action. And we saw this in Acts 2.37. Having heard this, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the disciples, Men, brothers, what shall we do? And that's the question that mankind has been asking since the beginning. What then shall we do in response to this? What action can we take to enter into and to stay true to the relationship with our God? And that is what we're going to be exploring today. Because the tabernacle contains within it the process of a human's approach to God. The things that we can do and focus on as we enter into relationship with the Most High God of all the earth. Exodus 26.31-27.19 through 27, 19. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine woven linen, the work of a skilled workman made with cherubim. And you shall put it on the four columns of acacia wood overlaid with gold, their hooks of gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the hooks and shall bring the ark of the witness there behind the veil. And the veil shall make a separation for you between the holy and the most holy place. And you shall put the lid of atonement upon the ark of the witness in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil, and the lampstand opposite the table, on the side of the dwelling place toward the south, and put the table on the north side. And you shall make a covering for the door of the tent, of blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the covering five columns of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, their hooks of gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. And you shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar is square, and its height three cubits. And you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns are of the same, and you shall overlay it with bronze. And you shall make its pots to receive its ashes, and its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its fire holders, and make all its utensils of bronze. And you shall make its grating for it, a bronze network, and shall make on the network four bronze rings at its four corners. And shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath so that the network is halfway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and shall overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar for lifting it. Make it hollow with boards, as it was shown to you on the mountain, so they are to make it. And you shall make the courtyard of the dwelling place, 
for the south side screens for the courtyard made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side, and its 20 columns and their 20 sockets of bronze, the hooks of the columns and their bands of silver. And so for the north side in length, screens 100 cubits long with its 20 columns and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the columns and their bands of silver. And the width of the courtyard on the west side, screens of 50 cubits with their 10 columns and their 10 sockets. And the width of the courtyard on the east side, 50 cubits. And the screens on the side of the gate, 15 cubits with the three columns and their three sockets. And on the other side, screens of 15 cubits with their three columns and their three sockets. And for the gate of the courtyard, a covering 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine woven linen made by a weaver, four columns and four sockets. All of the columns around the courtyard have bands of silver, their hooks silver and their sockets bronze. The length of the courtyard is 100 cubits and the width 50 by 50 and the height 5 cubits woven of fine linen thread and its sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the dwelling place for all its service, all its pegs, and all the pegs of the courtyard are bronze. In the ancient world, temples were the center of community life. The worship of the local or personal deity was the ultimate expression of a person's sense of identity. The hope of the future, the fear of misfortune that gripped most people could be eased by going to the temple and performing whatever rite was necessary to appease or to please whatever god the worshiper chose. And the ancient world was full of gods and full of temples for people to choose from. Some gods or goddesses would have multiple temples in certain cities that each temple would be dedicated to a specific aspect of that god. And each temple would attempt to attract worshipers in various ways. They would provide a glimpse of the pleasures that awaited them within by promising some sort of experience, whether that be gluttony, sports, drunkenness, or sex, and using such to appeal to the base desires of the worshiper. By decorating their temples on the outside to draw in people to worship and to give offerings. By preying on a person's fears and anxieties. Each of these things in an attempt to appeal to the outward man and the fleshly desires that are natural to mankind. So when Israel was given the instructions for the dwelling place of their God, it stood in a stark contrast to the temples of the pagan nations because the tabernacle of Hashem contained none of these things. It was plain. It was boring to look on, and it contained nothing within that would draw a worshiper to choose this God over the other options based on what they could see from the outside. Because the outside is not what matters at all to the God of Israel, as we read earlier. From the outside, all that anyone would see is a white linen fence that was five cubits high. All along this fence would be posts at every five cubits that would be hidden by the linen. And these posts would rest in sockets of bronze at the bottom and would have hooks of silver to connect them at the top of the post. This fence and its materials speak of the worship of God being rooted in judgment as the bronze sockets at the base. A span of righteousness and uprightness in the linen cloth and the top hooks of silver representing the righteousness that hangs on redemption alone. And behind this curtain, the only other thing to look on from the outside was a building. In fact, it was simply a tent that was 10 cubits tall, 10 cubits wide, and 30 cubits long. That was, it was simply a giant box covered with unadorned leather. None of this was anything special to look at, and none of this would entice anyone to come in and to worship this God. And that's the point. Man cannot do anything to come into relationship with Hashem. 
There was no enticement to draw near, no costly articles to see, no special frills, only a call to righteousness and redemption. Nothing more. And it was upon the worshiper as to whether they would even begin to enter in. It was a call in the heart of a man to draw near. The only thing of any color or decorated beauty from the outside was the gate at the east side of the tabernacle courtyard, the place of entry into worship. This gate was made of the same material as the veil at the entrance of the tabernacle itself, blue, purple, scarlet yarn woven together with fine linen threads. Once again, this material speaks of God who lives in the heavens signified by the blue, mortal man signified by the red, coming together in royalty and priesthood as signified in the purple. And running throughout this symbol of this relationship and interaction of God and man is that white linen thread of righteousness. Now, while the east side of the courtyard was 50 cubits wide, the gateway into the courtyard was all of 20 cubits wide. That's double the width of the tabernacle itself, which is only 10 cubits wide. The gate into the courtyard is one that is open to all who wish to enter into covenant with the Most High. Any and all who wish to enter into the gates of the tabernacle to worship were to be allowed to do so. But the gate itself was to remain closed to all until they took the steps necessary to enter in. This curtain that hung over the entrance at all times, and only when a person was actively entering would the curtain then be pulled aside to allow them entry. And entry was limited only to a cross-section. Only to those who are what is called ritually clean would be allowed to approach. This means that the worshiper must not have the stench of death on them in any way. And the ways in which uncleanness could affect a person, we're going to read of in greater detail in Leviticus. All who entered were to clean themselves as little as the night before, or to take part in a cleansing ceremony that could have started up to seven days before, depending on the type of uncleanness that they were under. And once the worshiper was clean, they were required to remain clean before their entry into the tabernacle. No one could simply come in off the streets, as it were, and approach the God of Israel, unlike those foreign temples, where anyone could stop in into a temple at any time. Now with the tabernacle, one must intend to enter before Hashem and must make the necessary preparations to do so beforehand, never simply on a whim. And entry by any other way than through the door was forbidden. Entry to the place of worship was controlled by the door, the gate. Any other attempt at entry was seen as an attempt to subvert the system that was designed to protect God's holiness from human uncleanness and to protect unclean humans from God's holiness. And this system of cleanliness and protection of the space of Hashem was enforced by the Levites. You see, the Levites encamped around the tabernacle, and all who would approach the tabernacle had to pass through their camps. Now John 10, 1-10 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter in through the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up by another way, that one is a thief and a robber. But he who enters in through the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens for him, and the sheep hear his voice, and he who calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And they shall by no means follow a stranger, but shall flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Yeshua used this figure of speech, but they did not know what he had been saying to them. 
Yeshua therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. Whoever enters through me, he shall be saved, and shall go in and shall go out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to slaughter and to destroy. I have come that they might possess life and that they might possess it beyond measure. In the modern age, the door of the tabernacle that we can enter in to dwell with Hashem is Yeshua, our Messiah, and all who enter in through him are his sheep. He is the one who protects the sanctity of the presence of Hashem from those who wish to enter in. All who wish to enter in must enter through him. Romans 5, 1-2 says, Therefore, having been declared right by faith, we have peace with God through our Master Yeshua Messiah, through whom also we have access by faith into this favor in which we stand, and we exult in the expectation of the honor of God. And holding up this gateway was four pillars. Their sockets were of bronze on the ground for justice, with bands of silver and hooks of silver at the top representing redemption. The four pillars signifying that all are welcome from the four corners of the earth. Four throughout Scripture signifies the entirety of a thing. A couple of examples, Isaiah eleven twelve, And he shall raise a banner for the nations and gather the outcasts of Israel and assemble the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Or Revelation 7, 1, And after this I saw four messengers standing at the four corners of the heaven, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And there's many other examples in Scripture besides just those. And once inside the gate, the first thing that the worshiper would see is the altar of sacrifice, the blood and the smoke and the heat of judgment. And the worshiper's own offering for the altar was brought with them to be partially destroyed on the fire. Because one did not come into the tabernacle courtyard without a sacrifice of some sort. Everyone was required to bring a sacrifice. And sacrifices took on several ideals, which we will talk about in greater detail when we get to Leviticus. But there are three, four primary types of sacrifice, depending on how you split them. When we get to Leviticus, we're going to split it out as four. But the three main animal sacrifices would be the Ola, which is the burnt offering. And, and the grain offerings, they were seen as gifts to Hashem. Then there's the Shlomim, or the peace offering, which is a shared meal to be eaten in his presence. And then there was the sin and the guilt offerings, which were an, an apology of sorts and were for cleansing and forgiveness. Now the altar itself was five cubits wide and deep, which is a seven and a half foot square. The four corners signifying the equality of all who come to sacrifice and the need of sacrifice for all men equally. And the size demonstrating that the entirety of a man was to be given on the altar, not just some portion. Because a seven and a half foot square altar, and a person could lay down in that altar, and the entirety of the man could be given. Now the altar itself was three cubits high. And inside the altar, halfway down at one and a half cubits, was a grate for the sacrifice to rest on while being consumed in the fire. And if we consider this, we discover that the sacrifices, whether animal or grain, actually occurred at the same height as the height of the box portion of the Ark of the Covenant at 1.5 cubits. Also the same height of the table of showbread inside the tent of 1.5 cubits. And if we continue with the parable of John 10, 
that we read just a moment ago, we discover something that is of the greatest importance. John 10, 11, continuing on the next verse, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Up to the time of Messiah, as the worshiper entered into the tabernacle, the worshiper would bring a sheep or, or a goat or oxen or bull or some other authorized animal or grain as their offering. And this offering would accompany them to the altar. And all of the offerings listed in Leviticus, they have an allowance for a substitute, except for one. The guilt offering for one who has transgressed the holiness of Hashem, or the man who had ignorantly committed one of the sins that falls under the classification of a thing that should not be done. In those cases, only a perfect ram was acceptable as a sacrifice in that case. And the animal that accompanied the worshiper, in this case, a sheep, was the substitution for the worshiper who could not come before Hashem with guilt, without the shedding of blood. And as both the gate and the shepherd in John 10, especially as the good shepherd, Yeshua laid down his own life so that the sheep need not die in sin any longer. He became the guilt sacrifice on our behalf so that we could enter into the presence of Hashem, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And we'll see this on a much deeper level in a few weeks when we actually take the time to look at the Messiah in the tabernacle as a whole. Now, in our practical lives, as we begin to approach God, the altar is the place that signifies the need to begin to live lives of sacrifice toward God, to give of ourselves completely. Romans 12, 1 says, I call upon you, therefore, brothers, through the compassion of God, to present your bodies as a living offering holy, well-pleasing to God, your reasonable worship. Hebrews 13, 15-16 Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice offering of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well-pleased. Or Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a heart broken and crushed. Oh God, these you do not despise. And this is what we are called to do through the symbol of the altar, to live lives of sacrifice towards God and the world, giving of ourselves, not just physically, but giving of our pride and accepting humility towards God, making ourselves available to Him giving up the entirety of our lives willingly to become subject to his desire and his will. Matthew 16, 24-25 says, Then Yeshua said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Now, alongside the altar is another piece that is not mentioned in this or the previous Parsha, and that is the bronze laver. The bronze laver is that wash basin which the priests would use to wash their hands and their feet before entering into the tabernacle and before offering sacrifice. And this laver was made using the mirrors of the women who served in the court, according to Exodus 38.8. Now, that's significant. Once again, it's revealed that service to God is not based upon what a person looks like on the outside. They gave up their things to see what they looked like on the outside in order to make this for them. 
And the priests would wash their hands and feet in this basin, showing that service to God is based on keeping one's actions and their walk pure, nothing more. And in 1 Timothy 2, 8-10, Paul gives this admonition to Timothy. So I resolve that men pray everywhere, lifting up hands that are holy, without wrath or disputing, likewise that the women dress themselves becomingly, with decency and sensibleness, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but with good works, which is becoming for women undertaking the worship of God. Worship for both men and women is not a matter of outward appearance. Rather, it is holy hands and good works which make a person fit for taking on the practice of worship to God. And these are the outward attitudes that a worshiper of Hashem must take on in their lives as they begin to approach God and to worship and to dwell with Him. Now, in the tabernacle, the wilderness that we're reading of here, only the priests were allowed to enter into the holy place. Only those who represented God to the community had the opportunity to enter into that deeper place of relationship with Hashem. But as we spoke of last week, when Yeshua died, we were given access to the holy place as priests of this new priesthood instituted in him. Hebrews 10, 19-22 says, So brothers, having boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way which he instituted for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and completeness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from a wicked conscience and our bodies washed with clean water. When the veil in the tabernacle was torn in two at the crucifixion of Yeshua, there was in that instant a change of priesthood. Now the veil that tore was not the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. It was the veil that separated the holy place from the outside. It wasn't signifying that we could just boldly enter into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's holiness dwells. No, it's signifying that the entire world is being called to be priests, and we can all enter into that place of intimacy, that place of joining together with Him. And we are to be that new priesthood. Now, a new priesthood, how can this be? Instituting a new priesthood would be to break the Torah. Only the sons of Aaron were to be priests. And we'll see in a few weeks that there is in fact a precedent for a change in priesthood, which is reflected in the text, and we'll examine that in an upcoming lesson. There is a change that provides a way for each of us who are redeemed by the blood of Yeshua to enter into the reality that the physical tabernacle it was simply a shadow of. You see, the role of the priest is one that at the time that Israel left Egypt, it was the role for the firstborn. It was a role that was transferred to the sons of Aaron at a later date and through an exchange that occurs in Numbers chapter 3. And from that point onward in the history of Israel, the priesthood was limited to those who were blood descendants of Aaron, then later blood descendants of Phinehas, and then finally blood descendants of Zadok. But under Yeshua, the priesthood has once again changed. It is still a priesthood that is determined by blood. But now it's the blood of Yeshua, and it's a choice of rebirth, rather than the blood of Aaron and a circumstance of human birth. And all who take up this priesthood can enter into the holy place in the heavenlies, because there is no holy place 
unearthly, as is described here. And so now, all who are of the blood of Yeshua, we can take up the mantle of a priest and act as a representative of God to men. All who are washed in the blood are dressed in white linen, the garments of a priest. And we all now have the opportunity to enter into the holy place. Revelation 19, 7-8 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him praise. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has prepared herself. And to her it was given to be dressed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the holy ones. And to do this, to enter the holy place, we must pass through that outer veil. Once again, it's a weaved work of blue, red, and purple yarn and fine linen. It's a unique piece of cloth and is a square of 10 cubits by 10 cubits. And it sits on five pillars of gold sitting on sockets of bronze. Bronze still signifying judgment, but these pillars are gold and they represent the divinity in the area beyond. These pillars were only objects viewable from outside of the tabernacle that were made of gold. All else outside the building was bronze and silver. The only thing of gold that was seen were these pillars. And there were five pillars rather than four, which we saw at the gate. Now, five in Scripture represents God's grace, which leads to overflowing abundance. Some examples of this in Scripture, Joseph gave Benjamin five times more than the other. It's an overflowing grace. Yeshua fed 5,000 with five loaves. Again, grace leading to abundance. The anointing oil and the incense, they're composed of five ingredients each. There are five daughters of Zelophehad, which speaks of the grace that was extended to those daughters by allowing them to inherit. And five books of the Torah, and, and so forth. There's, there's many examples of this in Scripture. But from the very beginning, Entry into the tabernacle in the presence of God was an act that was accomplished only by the abundant grace of Hashem. He doesn't need to let anyone in. He doesn't need people. But He does desire relationship. And the only way that happens is for Him to extend grace to fallen humans. Don't let anyone ever tell you that grace is only a New Testament concept. It is not. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And we're going to read in just a few chapters, God himself declare that one of his qualities is grace. Grace is not simply New Testament. Grace is Bible. Now, once inside the tabernacle, everything changes. No longer is it all bronze and silver and white linen. Inside, nearly every piece was made of gold. The boards of the tabernacle, they created a solid wall on both sides. And those boards, as we discussed last week, were placed in sockets of silver. The pillars between the holy place and the holy of holies were also on sockets of silver. And inside the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. The lamp to the left or the south. The only light in the interior with its lights facing towards the front of the lamp or facing towards the interior of the tent. The table of the bread of the presence to the right or to the north. The twelve loaves signifying the entirety of the community of Israel in the presence of God. And against the back wall, just before the veil to the Holy of Holies, was the altar of incense, sending its cloud of prayers towards the heaven. And so to the left and the right are walls of solid gold and all of the furniture made of gold. 
But before, above, and behind are the two veils and the inner curtain which created the ceiling. All of these were made of that same fabric, that work of woven wool and linen, that cloth that was composed of red, blue, purple, and white. But the top and the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies and their inner curtain of the roof had as part of their weaving the cherubim, those heavenly protectors of the throne room of God. The interior speaks clearly to this place being a place of the divine presence, the gold of the walls, the curtain making a sort of sky, a reminder that God lives beyond that veil right there. There's just a piece of cloth between you and him that none can go through but one, and that one only once a year. And the items within, they retain the symbolism that we spoke of last week. The table of showbread representing the word of God taken into the inward man. The word that spends a week marinating in the presence of God and which is then taken in on a weekly basis. The lamp representing the reality that a believer who has entered into the holy place as a priest has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the fact that it is the Spirit of God that gives light to our natural interior of darkness. Ephesians 5, 8-21 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Master. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is well-pleasing to the Master, and having no fellowship with the fruitless works of darkness, but rather convict them, for it is a shame even to speak of what is done by them in secret. But all matters being convicted are manifested by the light, for whatever is manifested is light. That is why he says, Wake up, you who sleep, and arise from the dead, and Messiah will shine on you. See then that you walk exactly, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are wicked. So then do not be foolish, but understand what is the desire of Hashem. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is loose behavior, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to each other in psalms and songs of praise and spiritual songs, singing and striking the strings in your heart to the Master, giving thanks always for all to God the Father. In the name of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, subjecting yourselves to each other in the fear of God. And throughout Scripture, light and fire, they're symbols of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit doesn't exist in a vacuum. It must be accompanied by the Word of God. And Paul recognizes this as the sword of the Spirit is called the Word of God in Ephesians 6. And for an ancient culture in which getting printed copies of a book was expensive and non-practical, weekly was all that they had for taking in the Word. There was no other option for getting the Word of God but a weekly meeting and the weekly readings that came from those meetings. And secondly, it must be accompanied by prayer as symbolized in the altar of incense. This altar which was lit daily with fresh incense to ascend before the throne of God. Psalm 141, verse 2, Let my prayers be prepared before you as incense, the lifting of my hands as the evening offering. Revelation 5, 8, And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the holy ones. Both morning and evening, new incense was to be burned on this altar. Exodus 30, 7 through 8, and Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense. Morning by morning, as he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights these lamps between the evenings, he shall burn incense on it, a continual incense before Hashem throughout your generations.
continual incense before Hashem. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. That continual incense. In all circumstances, give thanks, for this is the desire of God and Messiah Yeshua for you. Pray without ceasing, just as the incense was to burn before the ark without ceasing. All three of these items describing the inner life of what is called in most translations a saint. The menorah, the showbread, and the incense. Each of these things must be present in each person's life before they can truly be called a dwelling place of God. Each of these things must be present before growth can occur in the life of a person in relationship to God. And then, the final veil. Four gold pillars with gold hooks. Four representing the place of the all-encompassing God of creation. Gold representing that He is the Divine One. And behind that final veil in the innermost sanctum of the human heart, the place which on its own is desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is crooked above all and desperately sick. Who shall know it? And an impure heart leads to double-mindedness. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God and He shall draw near to you. Cleanse hands, sinners, and cleanse the hearts, you double-minded. But the good news is, is our heart can be renewed. When the presence of Hashem enters in, the heart can be remade afresh. Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Proverbs 3.5-6, Trust in Hashem with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Know Him in all your ways, and He makes all your paths straight. And it's from the heart that life flows when it's in right standing with Hashem. Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the sources of life. And it's in the tabernacle that we see this beautiful picture. When God comes close to man, he begins in the heart. And when man comes close to God, we begin with our actions. Both occur simultaneously. God working inside, man working outside, as we seek to enter into relationship with each other. And as the process occurs, both God working outward and man working inward in the midst, in that holy place of the tabernacle, we meet. We meet in His Word that's spoken over us. We meet in our prayers which ascend before Him. These two representing His Word towards us and our words towards Him. And all of this in the presence of His Spirit, which dwells within us and gives us light. These three are our place of intimacy with Him, the place where the heavenly and the earthly meet together, and the place where the kingdom of God springs forth. For we as men can and do begin with action, but our relationship can never stop there. It should never stop in a place of simple action. A relationship of simple action will never allow a person to enter into God's presence. The place of action, this outward place, is a place of death and judgment, and that's all it can ever be. Salvation based on works will keep you in this place of death. But we have been blessed with a good shepherd who has willingly laid down his life for his sheep. And because of his sacrifice, once and for all, we can now enter boldly into the holy place and live in the presence of God.
We can enter into his presence and we now become the place where heaven and earth meet. We become the tabernacle, the place where God dwells. We are this place in this current age, the place where life springs forth to reach the world around us. And that well of life is within us who believe, and it pours forth for the healing of the nations. And as we derashchai, as we seek life, we draw closer to the source of life. And as we draw closer to the source of life, the more we are able to give life to those around us. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.